This is Lauren Scott. Thank you very much for joining us today. Of course, Mr. Lauren Scott is a professor. Is it, how do you pronounce that word? Emer- professor? Emeritus. 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 Yeah, it's a, Latin, it's a Latin word that means small interior office. It's one of those words that I struggle trying to say it the first time, but once I hear it, then it just flows easy, and I, I just trip, trip up every now and then. And that's at Louisiana State University, of course. You, you help out uh, write a lot of the economic forecasts for the state, and you fold in a lot of the oil and gas uh, activity. That's why we wanted to bring you on today to talk a little bit about, you know, just what is going on here when it comes to either North America or from a global standpoint, and then also down in your neck of the woods. But just kind of your reaction out of the gate on these Biden executive orders and how they might affect either the industry or down in Louisiana? Well, I mean, the industry is uh, really in for it. If you look at what has happened, this is amazing what has happened in only two weeks, Uh, starting with the person that uh, the president wants to nominate as his interior secretary, Deb Halen. Uh, Halen is uh, on the record as being uh, wanting to ban fracking. She's on record of being in favor of the, the Green New Deal. She's on record of wanting to get rid of the internal combustion engine. Uh, so you, you're starting with somebody who's going to be a very strong adversary of the industry, of being in charge of all the permitting and the lease sales and that sort of thing uh, on the public lands and waters uh, in the United States. So this is that's a tough thing. And then you have the president, first day, saying he was put a moratorium on any new permits in on public lands and waters. And then he came out with another uh, moratorium on any lease sales uh, in the Gulf of Mexico for a year. And then on the day that he was inaugurated, the acting interior secretary issued a, uh, a, a, a what is called secretarial order 3395. This was an order that revoked uh, called a revocation of authority. And basically what that means is that for, you know, decades, uh, what happens is when you, the Secretary of Interior delegates down to the career staffers in the BSEE uh, and BOEM, the Old Mineral Management Service, he, they delegated down to them the, uh, the uh, examination of all, per, all permit applications and lease sales and that sort of thing. And they just delegated that authority down there to people who, who this was their job, this was their their background. Well, uh, the acting secretary on the very first day of the inauguration revoked that delegation of authority. Now, any new permit for the next 60 days, uh, any application, et cetera, has to go not only through those people, but through nine political appointees, one of nine political appointees, I should say. So once again, guess who's going to appoint the political appointees? <laughs> They're going to be people that are very anti-fossil fuels. So this is only in place for 60 days. So we'll see by the end of March just how bad this is going to be. But I mean, that is a lot. I mean, that is a. It's like somebody took a machine gun full of rules and just pulled the trigger back and aimed it right at the oil and gas industry. And bum 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 bum. We've really just taken it on the chin. Uh, in the first uh, in the first two weeks of this administration, well, so it's 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 a tough tough outlook for the future with that in hand. 
I, I can remember you and I discussing a lot of the uh, climate activism and the rise of it as much as five years ago. And just following that, now layer in the polarization that's happening in the political world. Have you ever in your professional career, either in, in any industry, ever seen such a thing like this? I, I mean, the only thing I can relate it to is the tobacco industry back in the 90s. Uh, yeah, or coal. Uh, coal, coal came under, yeah. you know, very much came under uh, 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 under attack under the Obama administration. Of course, that was that, and it was it was a, it was a strong hit to that industry. It's going to be different though when you come to oil and gas. I mean, the idea that you can do away with that you keep fossil fuels in the ground is you, you, you a person who believes that can't possibly have looked at the information and the data on that. Well, that- uh, for example, if you, you want to say, we're going to do all renewables, we're going to drive electric cars, where do you think the tires come from that are in that electric car? As a matter of fact, I think a lot of people will be stunned to learn that only 40% of the oil is used for transportation. When you got up and shaved this morning, you used shaving cream. You, you brushed your teeth with toothpaste and a toothbrush. You combed your hair with a comb. You washed your hair with shampoo. You took a baby vitamin. All of those things, you put on lipstick. All of those things have oil in them. Have the petro- They're petroleum-based. Uh, the detergent you use to wash your clothes. Uh, the, if you're taking notes on this, uh, on this interview, the ballpoint pen has oil product in it. The, the number of items, the, the milk, the, the jug that your milk comes in, this is made from an oil pro- oil-based product. It, it, the idea that you can just leave this stuff in the ground is silly. It's just flat silly. And so these 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 keep it in the ground, the United States rules, may, may work in the United States. All we're going to end up doing is getting the oil from someplace else. We're going to end up giving the Saudis all these profits instead of our own people these profits. It's really, really crazy. Dr. Lauren Scott is our guest. Uh, I did want to ask you about the disconnect because – I've been trying to figure this out for a while, and you know, I, I was trying the same thing as you, d- daily examples, and I tried the toothbrush example, you know, the toothbrush to the toothpaste to the tooth, tooth, you know, the package it comes in to how it got to your house, and people, people just don't, it just doesn't seem to care. So when I look at leadership, that's why leaders are supposed to be in place. They're supposed to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff. You know, they're supposed to separate the crazy from the not crazy. And so when, when I look at and I, I'm, and I'm trying to take politics out and I'm trying to be sterile, and I know that's hard to do because people get caught up on so many trigger things. But what we're talking about is 93 to 96% of our daily lives rely, rely on fossil fuels. So let's just round down to 90%. We'll give... We'll, we'll just be conservative. At 90%, if our daily lives rely on fossil fuels, and I'm 45 years old, if I were to live another 45 years, if we were to decrease that down to 70%, okay, that's only a 20% reduction. To me, that would seem aggressive. That would seem like an incredible feat as a society that we could do. Am, am I out of line for that 20% over the next 20, 30 years, or is that pretty normal, I guess? I really just don't think this is going to happen, period. I mean, <laughs> I, well, look, I mean, look at the, uh, for example, a lot of people just want to go to all electric vehicles. As a matter of fact, 
here's an interesting fact for your for your listeners. In, uh, the, the United Kingdom, the, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom said, we're going to do away with all internal combustion engines in England uh, by 2030. Well, so they're going to go. They're going to convert all their vehicles to electric. Now, to do that, uh, there, there's some interesting work done by the head of the uh, uh, Natural Museum in London that found that to do that, you would have to use one third of the excuse me, one half of the current world production of copper. You would have to use 100 percent of the world's production of neodymium, which is one of the metals that goes into the batteries, you would have to use three-quarters of all the lithium produced in the world. That's just to convert England's vehicles. And England has one-ninth the number of vehicles that the United States have. So to convert us all, you're going to have to scalp the surface of the earth to get to these metals. If all those metals are available, you're going to have to scalp the earth and to, to do that. And then you're going to have to drive these vehicles on rubber tires and all the plastic that is in that car. Uh, you know, when you filled your, uh, your uh, windshield washer, washer fluid container up, look at that windshield washer container. It's made out of plastic. All that plastic in your car is a, is a petroleum-based product. So the idea that we can just switch, we can do away with the internal combustion engine, you can't possibly have looked at the math. And you can't possibly have looked at what it's going to require in terms of metals. And you can't possibly, frankly, have looked at what it's going to do to the, uh, the environment from the scalping of the earth and, the, and all the graders and things like that that dig this stuff up compared to just using fossil fuels. And so it's... And plus, there, there's another couple of other important things. When the when the when the when the uh, the lower and middle class find out what a what an electric car costs, you know, you can basically get two Toyota Corollas for a, the cost of a Chevy Bolt. Uh, when they find out what it costs to do that, when people find out what it's going to be like to take a family vacation to North Dakota or to South Dakota, see the from from Louisiana. And how many times you're going to have to stop and spend the night because you've got to recharge your car, something that you can fill up in five minutes at 115,000 service stations in the United States. You're going to have to stop, first of all, and find a place you can plug yours in, and then you're going to have to wait you know, several hours for it to recharge. I mean, really, are people really going to do that? I mean, when faced with reality, I just really don't think this is going to work. What I think is interesting, too, and I'd love to know your perspective on this, is just the real kind of the, the backroom deals and the, the, the hidden, you know, the, the thing that nobody talks about. And the example I always give is up in North Dakota that, you know, we had, or we do, if not more, 55% of our state budget, you know, the education. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's tied to oil and those two taxes, the, the extraction tax and, uh-huh. and the production tax. So... Yeah. We've got 50, and that doesn't include all the guys coming in from out of state buying hunting and fishing licenses and vehicle renews and, and sales tax and all that other stuff. That's just the straight budget, 55%. So I've seen, mm. I've seen some studies that say that there's a 60-plus you know, percent reliance on the oil and gas industry. So you know, when, when a lot of this uh, COVID money comes in, 
and a few other things, they were making damn sure the state that those rigs did not go below five or zero because, you know, that's hard to get the people back. And yeah, yeah so just how, how did you look at some of this COVID money being played into uh, the oil and gas industry, uh, an industry traditionally not very prideful on accepting, you know, dollars, but, you know, some states kind of backed them into particular you know, situations and things like that. So, well, down here, of course, we're, we're a big oil and gas state. We're a big refining state, by the way. And if I'm, I'm, I'm going to come back to your question in just a second, but before I do that, I'm going to talk for just a minute about the school support and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, if you, if you go to all electric, the other thing that's going to go away are your refineries. So if you, if you go to, we have parish, we're the only state in the nation that has parishes instead of counties. If you go to any parish, in which there is a refinery, almost without exception, the number one top property taxpayer uh, in the area is the refinery. Uh, uh, like, for, for example, uh, Exxon Refinery, uh, we have an Exxon Refinery located here in East Baton Rouge Parish. They, they are the number one taxpayer by a mile over the number two taxpayer, which is our big energy corporation, Intergy, it's called Intergy Corporation, they provide electricity and gas to households around here. Uh, so they're the number one. They provide $30 million a year into our uh, local government budgets, mainly to schools. And uh, so if you suddenly just do away with those refineries, well, how in the heck are you going to support the schools? As a matter of fact, the primary way that the repair and the maintenance of your roads and bridges is from the gasoline tax. So what are, you, what are you going to do about that when you switch to all electric vehicles, which is just, I think, is impossible. But suppose you did do that. And you're, there's no longer any gasoline tax. How are you going to finance the maintenance, repair, and the building of your, of your roads? That is just going to be, that's, I, I don't, I'm not sure. You just need to think that somehow or another you're going to have to come up with a replacement uh, for that. Now, with, with, with regard to the, the COVID payments, in, in Louisiana, virtually every industry, uh, whether you're directly in the oil and gas extraction or whether you are uh, uh, in a, an associated industry like you provide, uh, you, you work the boats that supply the offshore oil industry or you're in a, uh, a, manufa- a fabrication business that provides equipment to them, et cetera. Those are all, were all basically from the outset uh, considered to be uh, uh, considered to be uh, essential industry. So the people kept working. At number two, they made a whole lot more money working uh, in their industry than they would uh, uh, being unemployed and getting the supplement. Now, other industries like our convention business was exactly the opposite, or the restaurant business, exactly the opposite. A lot of people could make a lot more money staying unemployed and uh, getting unemployment plus that supplement. And so that was a real problem for the, for the restaurant industry, the hotel industry, the whole hospitality industry when it came to staying open during this time period. Climate activism was another thing that I wanted to ask you about is obviously there's, there's been an increase on the pipelines. We've seen the executive orders. I'd love to know your opinion on the executive orders. But... We've stopped using the word environmentalists. We use the word climate activism or climate activists now because, quite honestly, I adopted a highway back in 2004, and 
I can, I'll go toe to toe with any environmentalist all day long, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to win that battle. So I consider myself more of an environmentalist than anybody, a lot of people. So that's why we switched the word. The other, the other um, kind of narrative we're trying to grab back is, you know, if they're going to protest these pipelines, let's let's see if we can have them protest maybe some of these these old pipelines that need to be replaced and bridges and roads because these are critical infrastructure that needs to be redone. And so if we're going to exert our energy, the new pipelines are actually making the world a better place and they're cleaner. So do you see my irony there that if we're going to be yeah, protesting, yeah. maybe we should switch the argument for these guys. Well, I think you're, <laughs> but, but you have to, I think you got to back up uh, uh, several steps. And that is if you are a real strong uh, activist, if you, if you, if you have a very strong belief in, uh, climate change, whatever that phrase means. And if you're a very strong uh, advocate that this is an existential crisis that we're facing, we're, the, the earth is about to go away, it's it's more of a religion to you. So your whole position is that you are you want to keep fossil fuels in the ground. And if you keep fossil fuels in the ground, one of the ways you can do that also is by stopping pipelines. And, and, you know, I will tell you right now that the pipeline business, which is, uh, is a very big business in our state, we, we not only make pipe, we coat pipe, we put pipe in the ground. We have a lot of companies that do that. Uh, our state has enough pipelines under, our, under Louisiana to circle the globe four and a half times. I mean, we have a lot of pipelines down here, no problem with them. But if you want to stop any uh, stop drilling activity as much as you can, but one of the ways to do that is to stop pipelines, uh, and and they've got a very good way to do that, because if you are, for example, in the state of Texas and you're you're developing like crazy the Permian Basin, and you want to run a pipeline from uh, Wink, Texas, down to Webster, Texas. Uh, you might say, well, this is all going over private land. This is no problem for us. we got the Texas Railroad Commission on our side. This is great, except for one thing. Every time you cross a waterway, uh, a river, a babbling brook, a lake, you have to get a special permission and special permit from the Army Corps. Well, once the Army Corps uh, gets under this administration and gets under the power of this administration, they've got you. You're not going to be able to get a permit. So a lot of the pipelines are just not only the ones that are underway and want to keep going, but anybody thinking about building a new one right now under this during this administration, I just think are going to, I just think that's going to come to a screeching halt, and that in turn will back up and make it very difficult to uh, to develop uh, uh, oil and natural gas activity, especially natural gas is going to be a problem. Uh, because there's just not enough pipelines to get the stuff out from where it is. So the pipeline business is in trouble. Imagine the flaring is going to increase then because of this too then. A lot of these pipelines, man, they had projections to reduce this flaring by double digits as soon as these pipelines went on board. So it just seems like that's kind of causing a problem, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, it'll, it will increase the desire to want to flare. But if you if they get also uh, start getting power within the state government, like uh, within the, the Texas Railroad Commission or your own regulatory body uh, there in North Dakota, if they can put the quietus on uh, on uh, flaring natural gas, then effectively what you're doing is you're stopping 
the production of oil, too. Mm-hmm. Because anytime you produce oil, you're producing associated natural gas, right? And you've got to do something with that stuff. And you can put oil on a uh, you can put oil on a train or in a truck and somehow or another get it down to the Gulf Coast. But that's not the case with natural gas. Natural gas has always been our problem if there's not enough pipelines to get it out of there. Well, you don't have it in North Dakota for sure. No, and you know it's it's too bad that uh, we can't get some more money or subsidize or I I don't know. I've I've said for a while now. Listen, I know the oil and gas industry is not big on subsidies and everything else, but if if we're going to be giving out the amount of subsidies that we're given to the wind and solar people who really in my from what i've seen haven't hit a mark haven't hit their milestones in 30 years and now we're continuing to give the same people who make six seven figures a year not hit their milestones and we believe them and then all this other stuff happens in the meantime we've got all these just crazy capitalists camping out at these well pads mining bitcoin figuring out ways to turn super plastic out of gas I would love to see the, these natural gas entrepreneurs get, uh, get, you know, get some wild card money to see if we can't figure out a, a new use for this natural gas. I don't know what your feeling is on that, but uh, well, uh, if, if the price gets low enough, they will. I mean, there's there's plenty of use for it right now. Uh, there's uh, now I'm very familiar with this because of where I live, and that is. In the last several years, when the price of oil dropped down to three or under three dollars per million BTU, one of the things that happened was there was a just an enormous movement of chemical firms uh, to uh, the the the, uh, the the Gulf the Gulf Coast, especially in Louisiana and in Southeast Texas. Just a humongous increase. Uh, for example, we would, uh, I've been forecasting the Louisiana economy for 40 years, as it turns out. And uh, in a really good year in the past, if we'd had $3 billion in industrial announcements in our state, we'd have thought that was really great. At one point, we had, we had $120 billion in announcements. And the reason they were coming here is because the pro- they, they make stuff out of natural gas. You know, the fertilizer that you people use up there is made out of natural gas. Uh, all kinds of stuff. Plastics are made out of natural gas. Uh, uh, pharmaceuticals are made out of natural gas. And so what was happening is the price of natural gas in Europe and Asia, where you have a lot of chemical firms, was four or five times higher than it was in Louisiana or Texas. And so what was happening is the firms were relocating from Europe and Asia down to the Gulf Coast, down here in uh, southeast Texas and in Louisiana. And so they're, they're eating up that natural gas. They're starting to use that natural gas. And then, because it's so cheap, one of the things that has been booming down here in about the last eight or nine years has been LNG export terminals. We are building LNG export terminals like crazy down here to liquefy that natural gas, take it in as a gas, liquefied, bring it to one six hundredth of its volume, put it on a big LNG tanker, ship it to Asia or ship it to um, to uh, Europe, where they then receive it and regasify it, and you know sell it as natural gas to power plants or or whatever. And and, and the reason they're able to do that, make it here, go through that whole process, is because the it's still going to be cheaper 
than what it is, what it's going to be in those countries if they have to import it by, by uh, pipeline from, say, Russia or bring it in from the Middle East. It's our, our guess is real cheap. So when it's real cheap, they'll start figuring out other uses for it. Well, you answered my question about the foreign companies investing in the Gulf Shore because I know you've been tracking that for a while. And yeah. and I think that's a very important thing that uh, that a lot of people in the oil and gas industry need to understand is that, you know, it's cheaper over to just relocate your company over to America than it is to sure. ship it over there. So, um, Oh, yeah, companies like Shintac and uh, BASF from Europe. Shintec from, I believe it's a Japanese company. Uh, we've had a couple of uh, Chinese companies, uh, Yuan Chemical, coming here to make methanol here, to take, make methanol out of natural gas, put that all that methanol to ship, and ship every bit of it over to China, as it turns out. There, you have companies doing that all over the place here now. That's, that's incredible. Um, what, what's next for oil and gas? I mean, everybody's talking about optimism and everybody's talking about, you know, the, the rebound and, and everything else. But at some point, the, 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 the government stimulus checks have to stop. People have to get back to work. And my guess is when people actually, you know, get back to work a little bit, that the, the industry should pick up a little bit. I, I guess I don't even know. I don't even can the is the economy beyond repair at this point or what? No, I think that I think the economy will. It, the underlying economy is basically before this coronavirus hit. The other, the underlying economy was very good. There were no bubbles out there in the real estate or tech industry, anything like that. The if you if you went back to January a year ago and look at the forecast, everybody's forecasting, hey, we're getting ready to enter a really good 2020. 2020 should be very good, and then boom, the coronavirus hit. So. The basic foundation of the economy, I think, is still very good. And so uh, as we get the, the, the vaccination out there, uh, as we get, thank God we have, the, people don't really appreciate how fast this got to market. Prior to this, the fastest we ever got a, a COVID vaccination to the market was the one for the mumps. That took four stinking years. This came about in less than a year. It's just amazing that they did this. Now we've got to get everybody vaccinated. Once we get everybody vaccinated, we get the herd immunity, and people start traveling and you know being comfortable around crowds and stuff like that again. I think the economy will come back, but it's not going to come back to great growth. And it's not going to come back to great growth, A, because you are going to be trying to kill a key industry in the state. You cannot kill, you cannot put the quietus on the oil and gas industry without losing lots of jobs. The second thing is, this is going to be an administration just like the Obama administration, but on steroids when it comes to regulations. We've already seen more regulations in two weeks than most 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 people get announced in a year. We got it in two weeks. There's gonna be regulations like crazy coming out. And you may think, well, we need those regulations. There's not enough of you. There's a lot of ill out here that we need to fix. But you need to understand something that from a firm's standpoint, the more regulations they face, as we say in principles of economics, their cost curves shift upward. And when their cost curves shift upward, they hire fewer people and produce less output. And so if you look, I mean, our, our kind of example of this was the Obama administration. If you look at the number of pages added to the Federal Registry between 1960 
and nineteen in two thousand and sixteen, you know, what is that? Four, four uh, sixty years of data. You will find that the seven of the ten largest years of additions to the federal registry were during the Obama administration, and the highest year of any of any administration ever in adding pages to the federal registry was the last year of the Obama administration. And as a result, if you look at all the boom periods that our country has been through since World War II, the one during the Obama administration was the slowest of any we've had since World War II. I mean, the, it, you know, you have more regulations, which means more costs, less output, less people. But the second thing you have is you don't know what the heck is coming out next. And when you have uncertainty about regulations, you put your hand around your billfold and you hang on. You don't make investments in your firm. You don't expand. You, you, you don't know what the heck is coming next, so you stop. So I, I think we're going to have some good growth numbers as everybody start getting back to normal again. But once we get back to normal, I think on the other side of that, prepare yourself for really slow growth, if any.